Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for the latest sermons and audio updates from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. at 1211 1st Avenue North on the 3rd floor. Hope to see you soon. St. Nicholas uh, was the child of a very, very rich family. Um, And both of his parents died when he was young. And so he had all of this money. He had a huge inheritance. He was a a total trust fund baby, except, you know, 2,000 years ago. Uh, But instead of sort of being a rich jerk, uh, St. Nicholas uh, decided to become a pastor. And so Christianity was illegal for the first almost 300 years after the death of Christ. Uh, And then uh, one of the Roman emperors decided to convert to Christianity. Whether he did that for political power, we're not going to get into that right now. But he decides that now Christianity goes from illegal to legal. And he says, you know what? Because it's been illegal, Christians have never gotten together and hammered out what the Bible says. And so here's what we need to do. We need to get everybody together and we need to take everything that the Bible says and distill it into sort of one statement about who God is. He was trying to get them to, re, to write the Nicene Creed. Well, so there's this bad guy there, and his name was Arius. And Arius said, and stick with me here because the story is about to get great. Arius said that Jesus wasn't always God, that Jesus just became God. And St. Nicholas was there, and St. Nicholas said this. St. Nicholas said, no, no, no. Jesus is God. Jesus has always been God. And Arius is standing up there, and he's like, no, no, this isn't the case. And so St. Nicholas, Santa Claus, right, the jolly guy who brings you gifts, stands up in the middle of about 500 other pastors and bishops and all these different people. He stands up and walks to Arius and basically says this, say that Jesus wasn't God. Say it again. (laughs) Say it again. And Arius says, Jesus wasn't always God. And literally, you can look this up in church history, St. Nicholas throws a right cross and knocks Arius out on the middle of the floor and says, no, no, this is what we believe. Jesus is God. And everybody's like, yeah, yeah, we agree with that guy. One of the things that the council had to hammer out that was so, so difficult is this. Was Jesus man? Was Jesus God? Or is there a third option? Is there another way? Was he kind of God and kind of man? What's hard for us is when we read this statement, like the Nicene Creed, it says things like he was very God of very God. He was of one substance with the Father. And what it's getting at is this idea that Jesus was at the same time completely God and completely man. He was 100% God and 100% man. But this is somewhat difficult for us, right? Because for something to be two 100% does not compute for us, right? I'm not very good at math. Most of you who know me at all know me. I'm not very good at math at all. But I even know that you can't have 200% in one thing. So it's really difficult for us to wrap our minds around the idea that Jesus was 100% God and Jesus was 100% man. See, what happens is our minds sort of by default end up sort of kicking one of those out or giving one of those sort of second tier. And so for some of us, we look at Jesus and go, okay, yeah, yeah, I mean, he was great and all, but being God, somebody who, who was a human, who, who lived among us, being God, no, no, no. 
he, he was a good moral example. He was a good teacher. He had a lot of nice things to say, but he wasn't God. Because we can't imagine God as a human. It doesn't compute for us. The trouble with this, though, is if he wasn't fully God, his sacrifice that he made on our behalf would not have been big enough. If he was just another human, his sacrifice would have been just another human. It would have been just somebody else doing something nice for other people. And so we have to believe that Jesus was fully God. But on the other hand, we have to believe that he was fully man. Right? This is, for most of us, especially those of us who have grown up in a church, we go, yes, Jesus was God. What we struggle with is the idea that Jesus was a man. We sort of think about the fact that Jesus got sick, that Jesus got a cold. And it sort of does not compute. No, no, he was perfect. Right? My friend uh, put a video up. They have a little baby that's about Elliot's age. And uh, he was at his, his wife's church, and they asked them to be uh, Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus in their live nativity. Right? And my friend Ethan, he wears glasses. And so he was you know, wearing his glasses. And I said, oh, Jesus wouldn't have worn glasses. He was perfect. And he responds, dude, I'm Joseph. The baby is Jesus. <laughs> I was like, Yeah. <laughs> Right. <laughs> and I do this professionally. This is not good. <laughs> but the idea that Jesus got sick, the idea that Jesus got tired, that he like got cuts and got scrapes and got infections and, and, and lived like the real life that we live doesn't always compute for us. We sort of have this idea that he sort of just sort of skated through life and was like just a ghost that people could touch. But he wasn't. He was fully God as well as fully man. And so what we have to do is we have to sort of keep these two things together. We have to hold on to them at the same time, which is hard for us. But that is what Advent is all about. What the season leading up to Christmas is all about is taking the time to sort of contemplate what it is that Jesus means, what it is Uh, that Jesus does, and we get to celebrate that mystery, that the God of the universe became and was man and was born of the Virgin Mary and came to earth and lived among us. And so that's what we celebrate, but we struggle with it. So what I want to do today is I want to show you a passage um, that the Apostle Paul wrote a few years after Jesus died and rose again. And what he does in this passage is shows us a little bit about what it meant for Jesus to come to this earth, what Advent meant for Jesus. And so um, what we're going to do is I'm going to read from Philippians 2. It's going to be on the screens if you have your Bibles or your City Church app, shameless plug. Um, You can find it there um, or you can just read along with me. So let's do this. Let's stand as we read Philippians 2, 5 through 11 together. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
to the glory of God the Father. City Church, this is the Word of God written nearly 2,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. The incarnation is the word that we use for this mystery of Jesus coming to earth, for this mystery of him being fully God and fully man. And what we see in the incarnation is that Jesus set aside his power, he set aside pleasure, and he set aside security in order that he might come and rescue us. Think about how that works. Jesus set aside power. Before he came to the earth, he sat on his throne in heaven next to the Father and ruled over everything. The Bible says that when God created the world, Jesus was the one speaking things into existence. And now Jesus comes to the earth and for the first three years of his life is not potty trained. Jesus had to have somebody clean his behind because he could not, because he was not potty trained. Can you imagine leaving a place of all power in the universe and being as helpless as an infant? This is, this is setting aside a lot. This is a big deal. Right? This is sort of one of the fears right, of, of the sort of baby boomer generation right, is this idea of losing autonomy. Because for so long, sort of people have, um, when folks got old, sent them to um, old folks' homes, things like that. Um, there is now this industry about people, the, the term is aging in place. Like there is a huge like, thing here in St. Petersburg. This is one of like the biggest aging in place hot spots, right? Where you can come to St. Pete and stay in your home and you get all this technology so that your children can take care of you from far away and you get nurses to come to you so you don't have to go to the doctor, right? Why is aging in place such a big deal? It's such a big deal because we don't want to lose our power. I don't want to ever again go back to being like an infant because I'm completely powerless. And yet in the incarnation, Jesus gave up all of his power and came as an infant. He didn't just give up his power, though. He gave up pleasure. In heaven, everything that he wanted was there. Every sort of thing that at his beck and call was there. And then he comes to earth. And his mom, he comes in from playing as a child and he says, Mom, what's for dinner? And she says, Lamb. And he says, we had lamb yesterday. And she says, yes, that's what I made. Now, Jesus wasn't disrespectful, but at the same time, he was disappointed because whatever mom cooked, he had to eat. The God of the universe was subject to his mother's menu of food. This is how, this is how truly human Jesus was. But he also gave away security because when he stepped out of heaven, when he humbled himself, when he was born of the Virgin Mary, he knew where this was going. He knew, as God, where his life was going to end up. And yet he steps out of that security and he comes to earth where he knows he's going to get hurt 
where he knows he is going to get betrayed, where he knows eventually his life is going to get taken. And yet Jesus sets aside his power, his pleasure, and his security. It's interesting that in this passage that we read, it said that he set this aside because he didn't think the privileges of being God was something to be grasped at. Which is sort of a word way of speaking, isn't it? We don't talk about grasping that much. Maybe, oh, he's grasping after that promotion. Maybe we use that language. But in reality, we don't use the language of grasping. But what's what's interesting is the writer, Paul here, is actually sort of trying to make something else ring in our ears. He's trying to make a different passage come to our mind where a guy and his wife stood naked in a garden and reached out and grasped for an apple. Because you think about it, if in the incarnation Jesus sets aside his power, his pleasure, his security, what Adam did at the very beginning of the Bible was trying to grab onto power, pleasure, and security. What was the temptation that the snake said when he got Adam and Eve to eat the apple? He said, eat of this apple because in the moment that you do, you will become like God. You'll be powerful. If you just eat of this fruit, I know God told you not to, but if you just eat of this fruit, you will be powerful. And not only that, when Adam and Eve looked at the fruit, the first thing that they said about the fruit is, wow, that looks like a tasty fruit. You know food that looks good and food that does not. Right? We're all adults now. Whenever Salisbury steak comes out on a plate, we go, ew, gross. Right? We just sort of look at Salisbury steak and go, is that like a hamburger covered in ew? Right? Um, I just, you know, I was just about to make a joke about my mother in law's cooking, but I realize that now these sermons are being recorded, so I'm not going to. <laughs> But insert that joke here, if you would. They looked at this fruit. They looked at the fruit Adam and Eve did, and they said, this looks tasty. It looks pleasurable. I want to eat that, right? It's the, it, it's the feeling that the rest of us have when we saw pizza last night, or when we see pizza anytime. I see pizza. I say, I want that, right? But you already ate a big meal. Yeah, I can do a slice, I can do pizza, right? Adam and Eve not only wanted power to be like God, but they looked at it and they said, I want pleasure. That looks good. I want that. And they also wanted security. He said, if you eat of this fruit, not only will you become like God, here's how you will become like God. You will know good from evil. Why did they need to know good from evil? Why was that tempting? Why did that tick in their brain? For the same reason you and I are so concerned with the question of what is good and what is evil. How many times do you and I want to know the difference between wrong and right so that I can feel good about myself and justify myself? If I know it's wrong to do that and I don't do that, I feel good about myself. If I know it's okay if I go this far, but I don't go that far, I'm good. And I feel nice and self-righteous because I can justify myself. I can say, I'm doing the right thing. God should accept me because I don't. And we fill in the blank with whatever sins we can avoid. And we don't talk about the ones that plague us, 
right? We talk about the sins of other people out there and we kind of ignore these things that we do all the time. Adam and Eve, he says, you'll know good from evil. You'll know how to justify yourselves. You'll be like God. It's interesting that Jesus is called by Paul elsewhere the second Adam. But to where Adam grabs the fruit in a desire for power, for pleasure, and security, what does Jesus do? He willingly sets aside all of his power. He willingly sets aside pleasure. He willingly sets aside security. So here's the question for us. How many of us are grasping after power, pleasure, and security? How much of my life is ruled by chasing after those three things? There's, um, there's this musical, it's called Hamilton. Um, you may have heard of it either because it's like the most popular show on Broadway in the past 15 years or because our president-elect got into a screaming match on Twitter with the actors in the play. Whatever way you've heard of it or if you haven't heard of it, uh, it's kind of a big deal in culture right now. And one of the antagonists in the story is Aaron Burr. And in one of the songs he sings, I am the one thing in life that I can control. What he's talking about is the way that he grabs power over his life. How many of us in our day-to-day life, what we're really seeking after, whether it's at work, whether it's in a relationship, is control. Whether that's self-control or whether that's control of others. How many of us are trying to work every circumstance so that even if it goes bad for me, I'm controlling the way that it goes bad for me? How many of us believe that if I just work hard enough, I can control my future? I can control my destiny, the amount of wealth that I have, where I'm going to live when I get older. I can control the way that my children will live because of the finances that I'll be able to give them. How many of us live our lives chasing control? probably more of us than we care to admit. And what about pleasure? How many of us structure our lives simply so that we can chase pleasure? Whether that's food, whether that's drinking, whether that's sex, whether that's... You fill in the blank with what is most pleasurable. How many of us, that is what our lives are angled at? That's what's most important to us. You know, Christmas, um, Christmas has a way of exposing this in us, right? Christmas has a way of exposing the way that what, what we're really all about is pleasure. So we were at my in-law's house. This is a good in-law story. Um, this can go on the tape. Um, and my wife was like, hey, my mom and dad are going to ask you what you want for Christmas, Right? We're up there for Thanksgiving. We're not going to see them for Christmas. And she's like, hey, you need to be thinking about what you want for Christmas. And I was like, gosh, I don't know. Right? I mean, like, I've got every gadget I want and several that I don't need. I've got an Inu hammock and a bike. I mean, that's pretty much all you need in St. Pete. 
And I was like, I don't know, maybe some t-shirts? I don't know. I don't really want anything. And she's like, okay, that's fine. And so we go on sort of about our life, and her mom gives us some money, gives us a check. And the next day, she's like, you know what I was thinking? I was thinking you and I should take the money that my mom gave us together and buy ourselves a new dining room table. And I said, oh, I don't want that. That's not fun. It's not going to bring me great joy. In fact, we're going to get it from Ikea and I'm going to have to put it together. So it's going to bring me great frustration. (laughs) Now, I I still can't tell you what I want for Christmas. I still can't tell you what I would have wanted. But here's what I can tell you. I didn't want a table. Why? Why? What's What's going on in Justin's heart in that moment? I am all about my pleasure. And even if I can't figure out what it is I want for Christmas... I know I don't want that because that doesn't make me happy and so I'm disappointed when I got that. How much of our lives is that but more serious? I'm disappointed because I didn't get this experience. I'm disappointed because this didn't go as easily as I wanted. I'm disappointed because this relationship doesn't look the way I want it to. So many of us, just like Adam, are chasing pleasure. And so many of us are chasing security. So many of us want so badly to know that what's going to happen, we will know about. Uh, Some of you guys, um, well, Tiffany and Liz got to meet Jimbo and Bruce, who brought these chairs from South Carolina for us. And um, Jimbo and Bruce are these... West Virginia born, South Carolina, good old boys. And I mean, they're just, you know, well, yeah, I mean, they're like, they're, they're, they're good old boys. Let's just leave it at that, right? And I can remember one time Bruce saying to me, I can handle anything in life if you give me prior notice. I can handle anything you throw at me. I can handle anything so long as I know it's coming. Listen, you're going to throw a punch and hit me in the face? Tell me before you do it and I don't care. I'm going to lose my job? Give me notice and everything is fine. Things are going to go poorly for me? Just tell me before it happens and I'll be fine. How many of us are chasing security like that? Or better yet, How many of us are terrified of obscurity? How many of us don't want to live our lives and the only thing notable about us is nothing? That we met a spouse, got married, had some kids, worked some jobs, died. Why is it that that idea that we might die obscure? That we might never cross 500 followers on Instagram or Twitter? That nobody outside of our friends and family might know our name? Why is that somewhat unsettling for many of us? Because if I'm 
Because if I'm obscure, I'm insecure. Because if I'm obscure, I can't control my destiny. Because if people don't know who I am, who am I going to turn to when things get bad? And so what do I do? I self-promote so that other people will know me, know who I am, think I'm important, so that I will be secure. You see, it's interesting that we find that we look more like Adam than we do Jesus. And this is true of us whether we're a Christian or not. Whether we call ourselves a Christian, whether we are just trying to figure out this God and Jesus thing, no matter where we are on that spectrum, I think that all of us, when we look carefully at our lives, see more of the Adam, more of the grasping for power and security and pleasure than the setting aside of it. But that's why this passage is so fascinating because it doesn't just end with the way that Jesus came to this earth. It doesn't just end with Jesus setting aside all of his power, his pleasure, his security. It shows how that always had another end game in mind. That that sort of found its ultimate case. That the ultimate way that Jesus laid aside his pleasure, his power, his security, the ultimate way that he laid all of that aside is by letting his life be taken. And not just letting his life be taken. Not just allowing himself to die, but to die a brutal death. That's why it says, even death on a cross. Because when Jesus did that, he was completely God. And so his sacrifice was big enough to cover all of our sins. And he was completely man. So his suffering was real. Real like yours and mine, so that he can come alongside us and understand us. We don't just have a God who's far away who says, yeah, yeah, I died for you. We have a God who is near us, who experiences things with us, who knew what a hangnail is life and knew what a broken heart was like, who knew how we as humans felt and yet lived his life without sin, never once giving into that temptation to grasp after power, to grasp after security, never wanting to chase his own pleasure over what he should have done. And so for us, he offers forgiveness. Because we're far more broken in these areas than we care to admit. We don't like to look down in our hearts and go, that's the way I chase security. This is the way that pleasure rules my life. I don't like to ask the question, how am I wanting power and control? Because when I look at those things, what I begin to see is that I don't measure up. But church, here's the good news. Jesus knew this. Jesus knew the depths of your grasping and my grasping, the way that we chase these things. And yet, all the same, he dies for us. And he offers us more forgiveness than we could possibly dream. And what happens is when we really begin to believe that, when we really begin to say, yes, Jesus, I am broken. I am more routinely in love with power, pleasure, and security than I am with you. That's more my default. But Jesus, I need your forgiveness and I need you to change me. Here's how we begin to to change. See, the opposite of power, pleasure, and security 
is exactly what Jesus did. Self-sacrifice. Think about that this holiday season. What would it look like if we were a community of people who were broken and forgiven, who decided to be self-sacrificial to those around us, who decided, I don't have to chase getting the best toy for my kids and fight somebody over it, who decided, I'm not going to get mad at everyone else at the mall, who decided, I'm not going to chase my own pleasure in the way that I give gifts. That I'm going to be generous, sacrificing my own security to give to others who need it. What happens when we begin to do that is we begin to look more and more like Jesus. That we are changed in the way that we approach life. It's interesting um, that St. Nicholas, the way that we sort of get this legend that he gives sort of toys to kids, right? Besides punching heretics, the other thing that he did, I told you he was a trust fund baby, right? That he had a lot of money. Uh, St. Nicholas spent down his inheritance, his very sizable inheritance, helping prostitutes and orphans. He sacrificed tremendous wealth for the sake of people who most of us would look the other way, who most of us would maybe cross the street to get away from. Why? Because he was better than us? No. He had the same problems as us. Clearly he had an anger problem, which probably comes from power and control. No. Because he knew how great the forgiveness of Jesus was. He knew how much the real flesh and blood, Jesus fully God and fully man coming to earth mattered. Which brings us to communion. Because this communion meal, this bread and this wine that Jesus has given to us is a reminder that he was real, that Jesus was flesh and blood, that he wasn't some sort of spirit who just kind of looked like a human. Just like this is real bread and de-alcoholized real wine, like mostly real wine. Jesus was fully real. He was fully human and fully God at the same time. And so this meal points us back to who Jesus was. But at the same time, it pushes us outwards. Because one of the things that I hear often in one of the places I go is that food is fuel. That food is meant to fuel everything else that we do. And so just like that meal that gives you the strength to get through your day, fuels you, this is our spiritual food for those of us who are Christians. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray. I'm going to talk a little bit more about uh, communion, and then we're going to enjoy this together. So let me pray for us.